Hello and welcome to the first episode of our second series of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about all things Second World War, Prisoner of War escapes. The episode you're about to listen to was originally recorded for the first series, but due to technical issues we had during the recording, it was not usable at the time. Dave and I had always planned to revisit it and record another version of this episode, but with the untimely passing of Dave due to Covid, we never managed to get around to it. I've therefore gone back to the original recording to see what could be salvaged from it, and we have managed to edit together a 20 minute episode for you to enjoy. We apologise that it is relatively short and not up to our usual standard, but under the circumstances it felt like the right thing to do was to release it as a bonus episode for this second series. We hope that you enjoy the episode. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Dave Harrison. And welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about all things Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave, the history nerd. And me, Dave, the tech geek. And today we are going to be looking at someone with another strong, fantastic name. Um, it is Lieutenant the Earl of Cardigan. Excellent. It's, I mean, if that wasn't strong enough, his actual birth name get is even better. Uh, even better than the Earl of Cardigan. The, even better than the Earl of Cardigan. Would you believe it? <laughs> Would you believe it? So his full birth name was Chandos Sidney Cedric Brudenell Bruce. That's a double hyphenated name at the end there. So Brudenell Bruce. That is fantastic. And he went by Cedric. Cedric. Yes, Aww. which... I personally would have probably gone with Chandos, but, you know, each to their own. Uh, he he served in the Royal Army Service Corps. So the Royal Army Service Corps did a lot of the sort of the background stuff, a lot of the logistics, so things like transport and operational stuff. Right. And uh, he was in the medical unit. He was actually captured late in May 1940. So very early escape we're looking at here. He served in the Territorial Army before the war and ended up joining the active list in, in April 1939, which is only five months prior to the start of the war so it's almost like he saw something coming he felt it Uh, on the horizon yeah something in his waters he he could smell the gathering storm shall we say to quote churchill Uh, (laughs) and so yeah he he uh, he signed up for active list in april 1939 and he he was serving in belgium at the time of his capture one one thing i'm sure you're about to jump onto it but one of the first things that strikes me as different compared to everything we've looked at so far Mm -hmm. is that it says here was ordered to remain and be captured at a place yes yeah i I, that's it's a good point actually i suppose in essence they knew that they were being rounded up by this stage yeah and so in some ways you were especially if you're in the medical corps you would be expected to kind of stay and help those that had been injured yeah and so effectively you were ordered to remain and serve those who were injured rather than trying to make your getaway yeah but it, it, it seems in this case at least that potentially they were ordered to remain knowing that the only outcome from that was, was, is going to be capture. capture yeah exactly and so he was actually in a place called Crombeek a small town in Flanders near the French border and so they were taken prisoner on 29th of May 1940 uh, rounded up by the crew of a German armoured car 
And yeah, essentially, they they were just told to remain where they were, didn't move off for at least another day. I mean, they they seemed to, for for a long time, they just seemed to have been shunted around various hospitals and holding camps throughout Belgium for, you know, for quite a while, actually. And I suppose if if you've kind of captured a a medical unit, there's a lot of demand for that in and around May, June 1940 in in the Low Countries in northern France. There is a need for these sorts of skills, I suppose. So, So these would be put to work? Yeah, for, for the Germans exactly, and in, ah. in, in almost uh, stark contrast to some of the other ones that we've covered, where they were taken straight off in, as prisoners, yeah, and made to march back to Germany and what have you. These guys seem to have actually been made to work and and use their expertise as medical uh, servicemen in the medical unit. And so he, he kind of, as I say, was shunted around from Crombeek, uh, went to Ypres, which is more famous for the First World War, yeah, uh, famous battles there. Ended up, you know, taken to Camiart, uh, so went from. Camillars to Boulogne. What's interesting in the report from here is they actually says, I'd made up my mind that from now on I'd try to escape. So he hadn't initially thought about it. He was, he seemed quite happy to kind of do a lot of the medical stuff and kind of use his expertise and his skills to help those who were suffering at the time. There would have been quite a lot, as I say, a lot of demand for this sort of thing. So it's interesting it actually took a while for him to get around to thinking uh, about escape. I mean, it was like a switch had gone off in his head almost and just kind of went now I'm going to escape, whereas before he was happy. Exactly. I, mean, I, I wonder whether that's because he was in the medical trade and, you know, the, there is the whole thing of do no harm and help everyone, and I wonder whether that has part part to do with it. Uh, quite quite possibly, but, it you know, it, it seems to have taken him until about the 20th of June to really make a decision to yeah. escape, and given he was captured on the 29th of May. It's been quite a while that he's really taken to make this decision, and, you know, he's been moved around north, uh, all around Belgium... I mean, generally speaking, there was no expectation for a medical unit serviceman to not escape as such. You know, yeah. you weren't you weren't stopped from it, but it, it does seem to have had a lower rate of escape, especially you know when injured soldiers were in their care. Yeah, and he doesn't make explicit reference to this, but it was kind of implied. Yeah, that he had a duty of care to the soldiers. A- exactly. Yes. Can I ask a, a uh, this is a question that occurred to me when I was reading through uh, in a lot of the um, reports, in particular in here, when they were saying uh, we stayed uh, here for about 10 days and received adequate rations principally sausage and black bread a lot of them men- nice. uh, yeah it does a lot of them mentioned the rations and things like that and how they are treated mm-hmm. is that because I know you've mentioned the Geneva Convention and the ways they have to be treated is that to prove compliance within these reports or is it just the fact that as you're writing it down, people are always concentrated on the food and stuff, so that's that's a thing they will remember? No, I think there was a there was probably an element. This, as I say, I can't say for absolute certain what the motivation for recording that was, but my suspicion is it is from the British interrogators when they're writing these reports that we are working from, mm-hmm. in order for them to track whether their troops are being properly treated in accordance with the Geneva Convention. That would be my guess, right? Okay, so that they can make an assessment of that yeah I mean that makes sense but yeah it seems logical I was saying about how you know there's there's nothing kind of stopping them from medical unit from escaping but it kind of is implied that they will stay around an injured soldier and, and yeah. help them and he does kind of he kind of makes reference as I say it's largely implied but he does kind of say um, you know we, we'd been with the medical unit members of which had obviously made no attempt to get away yeah so it's kind of implied it's not explicitly stated but he does make reference to the fact that there wasn't a 
high rate of escape attempts amongst the medical unit. Which almost makes him not quite unique, but he, he stands out from the crowd, and or at least the well, crowd. Because he in. wants to escape. Because he wants yeah, to escape, yeah. exactly. And I suppose this again comes back to the sort of person who would escape. Yeah. The mindset that was involved, the character type that would be involved in this sort of thing. However, so uh, moving on to the escape itself, now having taken the decision to escape. So there's some interesting wording here. They're they're being transported by Laurie to Lille in northern France. <laughs> and he says, on, on this journey, our guard was reduced to the lorry driver and one-armed man who sat in front with the driver. Now, is that a one-armed man as in, this man has one arm? Or was it a single man who was armed see i imagine the the real answer is that it's a single man who is armed y- yes however i love the the idea that they that that they trusted him so much yeah he that, was that good yeah he was that good <laughs> they trusted him so much that they just Left him with a driver and a guy who just had one arm. Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's no way this med- this member of the medical unit, you know, the medical corps would escape. We we trust these guys. We trust him. I mean, he's he's this guy's got one arm. It's fine. Maybe he had one arm for injury and he was treating him. W- who knows? Who knows? But who uh, knows? I, yeah, I Not- lo- I love the idea. I love the image <laughs> of. Uh- <laughs> None, nonetheless, it, they they had clearly reduced security quite significantly by this yeah. stage. And so, not wholly dissimilar to the guys who escaped and ran away from the marching columns, this was an, another impromptu escape, where he basically just kind of legged it. <laughs> yeah, However, he didn't leg it from a column, he was in the back of a lorry, which he says, stop for a moment, and they jumped off the tail, stood in the road until the lorry had gone, and then dived for cover. Which, again, is just so impromptu, skin of the teeth, you know, you just kind of winging it as he you go He jumps along. out the back of a truck. Yeah, a moving, he jumps out of a moving lorry as it's as it's driving well actually no he says it stopped for a moment it's so. paused yeah so he, ju- um, he jumps out of it but, but as if that wasn't bad enough he then says I lay in some nettles for about six hours I mean these are not fun things to do no you know I'm going to throw myself out of a lorry and then I'm going to lie in some nettles for six hours surely there was some place nearby that wasn't nettles that you would think so in. or else there was just an, a plethora of dock leaves <laughs> yeah. uh, available for his relief I, I like to think there was probably not no, but he slowly crawled from the nettles to the duck leaves and just <laughs> rolled around in them afterwards. Quite right. So yeah, he then, he then went to a cafe and got some help from a, a, a Belgian who gave him a change of clothes and advice as to journey by day as by night the Germans imposed the curfew. Which again is in exact opposition to um, to a previous escape. Yeah. yeah, to a previous escape who decided to do it all by night. Yeah. So there seems to be no set advice for what works, what doesn't. Which is in good, good in some ways. It means that nothing was more like you know one or the other wasn't more likely to succeed you yeah. had an equal chance you had 50 50 chance whether you did it by day or by night it's whatever suited what your needs were yeah but it's just interesting that you know some people are saying you should travel by night some people are saying you should travel by day it is entire it seems to be entirely dependent on what actually works for the escaper rather than what works Yes. Full stop. Yeah. So again, he he you know he he took the decision to head south, head for unoccupied French territory. He travelled by foot, and it took him twenty five days uh, travelling on foot. He doesn't go into a lot of detail on a day by day basis. He doesn't, but I, I do like the way he's phrased it. It took me twenty five days exactly. Exactly. Not twenty four and a half. No. Not twenty five and three quarters. It's like he hit the border just as it hit midnight, and it's it, like that's it. Yeah. I'm here. I'm there. <laughs> I've, I've made it. Um, I've reached the top. So yeah, he he entered unoccupied France, not far from Chalon-sur-Saint. I'm going to run with. 
Yeah. And basically just dodged sentries as he crossed the line of demarcation. Yeah. From there, he took a train to Lyon, uh, where he was to spend a couple of days and received assistance, uh, including money from the American consul. So again, you know, the, the... Lots of people heading to the consul. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, you know, there seems to be, again, because there's a neutral country at this stage, seems and, okay, we now think of the special re- uh, relationship between Britain and America, but that's more of a post-war construction. Yeah. But there does seem to be sort of a mutual recognition to some extent that... America's roots largely ra- lie in Britain. Yeah. And therefore, okay, we fought two wars over it, but you know, <laughs> um, it seems to be a place, a, a neutral country that you can go to and feel safe in an approach and reckon that, you know, I suppose it's the only neutral country, only major nu- neutral country that spoke English, I suppose. So Yeah, it's, it's an easy one to get, because although a lot of people did speak multiple languages in this situation, you might not have been able to. Yes, exactly. And so from there, he headed to Marseille. Uh, he was advised to go to Marseille by uh, the UA American Council. And actually, while he was traveling on the train, he was asked for his papers, but he managed to bluff his way through by saying he was American. Well, I love the, the, yeah. I, I love the idea of a posh upper class Earl of Cardigan <laughs> trying, you know, passing himself off as a as an American. I would love to hear the American accent, the he, accent. he put on. Yeah, it would be incredible. Uh, um, you know, some sort of plummy cut glass <laughs> English accent merging into this american you know sort of midwest and so yeah he he blagged his way through like <laughs> and the fact that even in the language here is that but bluffed my way out of this by saying it was american he actually, yeah he knew he was just bsing the entire time exactly um so ha- having reached marseille he headed to the american consul again they they were actually you know not much help they seem to have kind of tried to discourage him from making any effort to head to spain and instead told him to go to fort saint jean which we discussed in previous episode which was a sort of holding camp in marseille for yep. gathering allied forces where and- everyone was just gathered exactly however nonetheless he he decided to actually stay in the hotel himself uh, rather than in the fort Um, but he he did interact with people who were staying in the fort and actually through the Siemens mission which was run by a Reverend Donald Caskey who we will definitely do an episode on you've mentioned a a little bit to me personally he sounds like a crazy character yeah he's he's um he lived an interesting wartime yeah. life, shall we say. So we'll, so we'll definitely cover his time in Marseille. Looking forward to that. His role in the escapes of hundreds of um, servicemen. Yeah. So And uh, yeah, so the Earl of Cardigan did come across uh, Caskey while he was there. And uh, he said they were uh, very helpful and obviously doing all they could to help escapers. So after about a week in Marseille, he says, I, I bought a bicycle. Uh, good to see uh, that. Uh, he actually bought one. He actually bought one. Didn't just find it. So yes, he, he bought a bicycle and avoided main roads, but cycled along the coast from Marseille towards Spain. And he seems to have not had too much difficulty, really. No, he seems to have just been been on his merry way so far. Yeah. And he says, you know, crossed into Spain at Las Elias. However, his his troubles almost started once he got into Spain. Actually, oh. this is quite interesting. You know, he's, he's travelled through occupied Europe. You know, he managed to escape from the lorry that he was travelling in with the one armed guard. Laid in some nettles. Laid, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Made his way down south to Marseille. Uh, bumped into some. You know, interacted with some fairly major characters in the overall escape story in Marseille and had no trouble kind of getting to Spain via, you know, from France. He arrived in Spain two months after his initial escape and yet barely seems to have lasted about 20 miles into Spain when he got arrested and taken to a jail at Figueras. But while he was there, he was um, visited by 
a representative, an unofficial representative of the British consul in Barcelona. But I wonder what that means. Is I that, don't know what that is means. Is that a spy? Possibly. An unofficial representative. Was that just, you know, the consul spy? It's, it's also not an unofficial representative. It's the unofficial representative. <laughs> Good point. I hadn't picked up on that. As if, like, everybody knows who this person is, but they're not going to say. <coughs> exactly. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. However, what, what is interesting, and again, this is in some ways why this is quite representative of the wider escape experience, has actually been arrested in Spain once you've made it to neutral Spain. seems to be quite a common occurrence. Really? Yeah, it seems to be quite a regular thing that happens. And they they also seem to kind of follow the same route. Um, <laughs> if they, if they're aiming for Barcelona, they seem to end up in Figueras and Miranda and places right. like this. It's the same names seem to keep cropping up. And so yeah, the, he got arrested once he'd kind of you know, quite early on in his journey through Spain. But he seems to have kind of kept on going. You know, they seem to have been transferring them for him. You know, kind of doing the journey for him, even though yeah. he's under arrest. So he's not traveling himself anymore. He's just being moved closer to where he wants to be. Yeah, exactly. But he he does say, generally speaking, our treatment at the hands of the Spaniards was bad, but rations were adequate. So what what I find interesting about this is conditions in neutral Spain were arguably worse than in occupied Europe. And really? being held in occupied Europe. However, the advantage of being in a neutral country was that the embassy could, or consul, could intervene on your behalf as a prisoner. And you, you do kind of see that repeatedly happening, is that yeah. they would be arrested, but then a, me- a member of the consulate uh, nearby or from the embassy itself in Madrid would just kind of appear at your in your prison, <laughs> have a little chat from you, and a little while later you were released and sent on your way. Uh, not, not to generalise, but that's essentially what happened. Nice. And that's kind of what happened here. You know, he says that we were visited by Major Lubbock from Madrid. And after a period of about a fortnight, I, with 30 other ranks, was released and taken under escort by train to Madrid, where we were all received at the embassy and looked after. Nice. So there does seem to kind of be some intervention taking place yeah. here. And so... Yeah, I mean, from there he was uh, taken under escort by train to San Roque and from there taken by car to Gibraltar. San Roque is only about 10 kilometres north of Gibraltar itself, so um, you've essentially gone due south from Madrid towards Gibraltar and then taken over the border by car and from there returned to the UK. So there's aspects of his escape that are representative of sort of the wider experience at this stage. Yeah. Whereby, you know, we are talking, we are again talking about quite an early escape that took place. He seems to have just kind of legged it, like so many of them did, headed south to unoccupied France, from there headed towards Spain, and, uh, you know, went through the whole being imprisoned in Spain. Uh, these experiences but there's a lot of commonality between what he went through and what a number of other escapers at this stage went through as well i mean what, what what's interesting is actually on his report he puts down his profession as writing not writer writing yeah. he actually did go on to release a number of books including the story of his escape yeah. uh, which is called i walked alone and yeah um it's again yeah. there is a copy of it in this room um <laughs> and so yeah no he, he i mean are he, we recording in some weird War library, yes, copies of all the yes. books everywhere, Pre- pretty much. Um, <laughs> and he had written two books prior to the war, right? Okay, uh, so he'd written Youth Goes East in 1928 and The Amateur Pilot in 1933. However, uh, he was to release another couple of books after the war, including, as I say, I Walked Alone, which is his account of this escape itself in 1950. He not quite foreshadowed his full career, but he was certainly to go on and write his account yeah. 
and take his place as the Earl of Cardigan <laughs> in the such, British annals of history. Such a cool name. I know, it's awesome. Thing. I mean, you know, it, it, it is a truism that uh, real men don't wear cardigans, but the Earl of Cardigan was a bit of a lad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay, um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, If you have, um, please consider subscribing to the podcast. Uh, We can be found on Apple iTunes, um, Google Podcasts, or uh, basically any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can follow us on Twitter on at F-I-T-W-I-O. If you'd like to send us a more long-form message, then you can also email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O pod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.